Hi, I'm Eric Gurna, Executive Director of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. So I'm here with Hannah Arafat, Senior Director of High School and Adult Programs for the YWCA of the City of New York. I'm here doing the the first ever Please Speak Freely interview in our own Development Without Limits office. So welcome, Hannah. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm pleased that you're here. Um, You and I have known each other for a number of years and worked together in a couple different capacities, I think, over the years. Um, But we've never had a chance to sit down and talk about, um, or at least talk publicly, about some really interesting experiences that you've had as a, as a um, program director and a leader in the field. Um, and, you know, I was saying before we actually formally got started that um, this, this interview is a little bit different from some of the Please Speak Freely episodes because I'm, I'm so eager to talk to you about this one particular thing that happened. Um, but as eager as I am to talk about that, I also know that the, the day-to-day work that you're engaged with is, is really um, interesting and important. And I'd love to hear a little bit about Uh, what you do. Okay, so I'm a program director at uh, Murray Bertram High School for Business Careers, which is a large high school in New York City. It's actually the last large high school in Manhattan, um, discounting maybe Stuyvesant, which is probably just as large or larger. And I also oversee program directors at two other high school sites, one at Independence High School, which is an alternative school, Mm -hmm. and one at uh, Rachel Carson High School, which is um, a smaller school in Coney Island. Um, And there are different programs that I oversee, but, you know, usually they're youth development programs. Mm -hmm. After school, um, we also have an in-school kind of attendance improvement dropout prevention program at Rachel Carson. As the program director, I'm kind of involved in direct service. Uh, but then overseeing two other program directors, mm-hmm. um, site coordinators, I also kind of do a lot of that administration, operations, kind of right. planning for the future, funding, grant writing, all of that kind of stuff. Sure. So I kind of wear a couple of hats. And you know, for the benefit of the national listeners, could you say a little bit about what you mean that it's uh, Murray Bertram is one of the or is the last you know large high school. In New York City, because obviously we still have the old school buildings we've always had. But Right. I mean, you know, in the past, I would say, I guess, 10 years, there's been this process of education reform, um, which entailed closing down, you know, failing high schools according to the benchmarks that the Department of Education has, um, and also the New York City Department of Education, and also... Mm-hmm. The New York State Education Department, they also may close down schools depending on their No Child Left Behind Act status. Um, So what happens is when these schools close down, often they're large high schools. They're replaced by smaller schools, oftentimes many large, uh, small schools within that large building that had once housed one school. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Murray Bertram is one of the last large high schools that still you know, considered one school mm-hmm. and not, you know, many smaller schools within a, a campus. Right. So yeah. a lot of these buildings that we work in have, will have, like, four or five principals in one in one school building. Exactly. Yeah. Each school occupying a different floor or, you know, just designated, demarcated space within the building. Right. Uh, but this building houses just one school, mm-hmm. the student body, you know, 2,200. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And Murray Bertram has a... Has a storied history too. I, I just I don't know if you saw the um, the Tribe Called Quest documentary. No, um, I haven't seen it. Although Q Tip is coming to visit the students, is he? in a couple of weeks oh, that's uh, cool. for Career Day, which is great. And I I'm going to sh- show that documentary to the students before. Oh, that's good because some of them might not really understand how important he is. Um, but they you know they talk about it because that's where a couple of them met. I think like him and and Alicia he Muhammad met at at. Murray Bertram. And they're graduates of Murray Bertram. Yeah. And yeah. and Murray Bertram has that history of being one of one of the best high schools in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um this is, you know, I would say maybe ten years ago it was considered a really competitive high school to get into because it was one of the high schools that um had a selection process 
for its student body. So students okay. have to apply mm-hmm. um, and be selected by the school. Right now, the selection process has kind of changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of that selection process, the school had you know a reputation that that you were going to get a really you know top rate, top notch education at Mary Bertram. Right, right. And actually, I think about. I don't know. I think maybe 12 to 15 years ago, there was like a U.S. News and World Report article about how it was one of the top 10 high schools in the nation. Really? Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I just thought it was cool because Q-Tip went there. But <laughs> if you don't know who Q-Tip is, you can just, you know, look up Tribe Called Quest, you know. Yeah, we're excited. School history. He's actually going to come to our after-school program oh, as well. Oh, that's so cool. We have a hip-hop appreciation class that yeah. the students produce their own music and their own rhymes. Um, and he's going to be coming and talking to them. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be really fun. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd love to, you know, I, I sort of built it up a little bit, what it is that I wanted to talk to you about. And um, maybe, you know, I could describe just, you know, in general what it was, and then we could we could walk through it a little bit. Um, you know, uh, coming on three years ago now, New York State had a, uh, was it three? Yeah, coming on three years mm-hmm. ago because the, the new cycle Close. is almost up. Yeah. Um, New York State had a um, funding competition for a 21st century community learning centers. So it was mm-hmm. a request for proposals, RFP, out from New York State. Um, 21st century is federal funds that gets granted to the states and then gets um, re-granted out to schools, school districts, community organizations, um, and even some private companies that get contracts to run after-school programs, out-of-school time programs. Um, that serve young people um, in um, economically poor uh, neighborhoods. And so there was a funding competition, and a lot of different organizations obviously put together proposals, Mm -hmm. um, including your own. And this particular RFP, um, the New York State, for whatever reason, changed some of their procurement methods, right? So they changed some of the processes for how they read, reviewed, scored, those proposals, um, and you received notification that your proposal had not been funded. Is right, that correct. Yeah, and then um, what did you do then? <laughs> well, I mean, what happened was that, um, you know, when we when we found out that we weren't funded, I, you know. Uh, we found out that I, I called the New York State. We found out that we had been tied mm-hmm. with, I think, ten other proposals mm-hmm. at a score of ninety-five out of a hundred. Mm-hmm. So you got an A. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> we we got a high score. Yeah. Um, so then we requested the the feedback from the reviewers, mm-hmm. um, and also we asked what was the measure that they used to break the tie, since you have. 10 programs that were tied at the score, and I believe they could only fund five of them. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to know, like, how did you rank them? And they said, we ranked them based on poverty. Mm-hmm. You know, the schools that have the highest poverty uh, were ranked higher in this tie-breaking situation. Right. Uh, then this, you know, so that's how they ranked it. Um, so then I went back, and I kind of thought about it, and I thought, well... So the, the the eligibility requirement to even um, submit a proposal was that you had to have at least forty percent of the students in the school qualify for free the the federal free lunch program. Right, free or reduced lunch. free and reduced yeah. lunch. And the way they calculate that is they have people they have students parents submit forms that show their income. Mm-hmm. And the school collects that, and that based on that, there's the percentage. Mm-hmm. So when I thought about it, I'd known that Murray Berkshire had struggled to get all of these lunch forms in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were lots of reasons for why they struggled. There's um, a poor parent involvement rate. It was very difficult for parents to be involved or to get the parents involved in the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were multiple factors for that. You know, the school drew its student body from all five boroughs, mm-hmm. it wasn't a zone school. So some students had to commute as much as two hours to get to the school building. Wow. So to bring parents into the school building was no easy task. Um, and then at the same time, I knew that the students didn't want to bring in the forms because, number one, they didn't like school lunches. So why would I bother to bring the form? And sure. number two, they didn't want to... 
um, they, they didn't want to be in the free lunch line. They yeah. didn't want to be stigmatized in that way. So I had known all that, and I thought, you know, Murray Bertram, because it's such a large school, it was at just it was at a disadvantage. There was no way that we would have been able to compete with, say, an elementary school that was in a commu- based in a community. Because everyone knows that elementary schools generally have higher parent participation rates. Mm -hmm. And if it's based in the community, you know, it's much easier for parents to come into the school building and be involved. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, you know, it's a large school. It's one of the last large schools in New York City. And so there was, um, you know, much more they needed to collect in order to get a high poverty percentage rates. Right. You know, in terms of that kind of reporting right. mechanism. Right. So I felt there was no way that Murray Bertram could have competed using that criteria. And so we did a little bit more research. We found out that, you know, I mean, what we had already known, but there was lots of research showing that high school students in general underreport their, sure. um, their income status mm-hmm. um, and the school lunch forms. And that also resulted... You know, around the city, you know, statewide, nationwide, yep. in high school program, high schools in particular, mm-hmm. receiving much le- a disproportionately less amount of money in Title One funds, which uses this criteria. Right. So we decided to write the protest, kind of to highlight this that there there was no way that Murray Bertram could have been awarded those funds based on that criteria. Right. And if I could just interject that that. I also looked at some of that research, and mm-hmm. um, I had been helping the the town where I live, Beacon, New York. I'd been helping Beacon to put together a 21st century proposal at that same time, um, just because I was involved with the community organization there. And we had found the same thing. It was actually for the middle school. You know, just you know, high school is underreported. Middle school is also under. You know, the mm-hmm. the um, socioeconomic status is less reported than at the elementary school level. I mean, it makes sense. It just um, the indignity of having to prove how poor you are becomes more felt the more mm-hmm. kids are aware of what other yeah. people think and and the parents' involvement, like you said, goes down as the grades go up mm-hmm. um, and it 's documented to the point that there's an alternative analysis that the state will allow called a feeder analysis mm-hmm. um, which is um, was easy in Beacon because Beacon has four elementary schools, a middle school, and a high school right so we're you know Beacon is borderline it 's a it's like it has the problems of you know a, pro- a community that has significant poverty, but it had not enough to get the grants. Right. So we're right, it's forty percent, I believe, right, is the mm-hmm. cutoff. We were we were just the middle school was showing was reporting just under forty percent. Mm. But if you looked at the feeder schools when you averaged it all out, um, it was it was over forty percent. Mm-hmm. And so we learned that the state would accept a feeder analysis. Um, as proving that 40%, right. um, which is really easy and straightforward to do when you're one town with four elementary schools, a middle school, and a high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, you know, elementary school to middle school, that transition, the kids who are taken out of the system at that point are going to private schools. So if anything, the, um, the rate of free and reduced lunch in the middle school should be higher than the average rate of all four schools. Right. Um, but then... When I when when you told me about the situation at Murray Bertram, and I realized that not being a community-based school, being a school that draws from all five boroughs, um, doing a feeder analysis would be impossible. I mean, you'd have to bring in, you know, McKinsey or Bain or some you know one of these consulting firms, and pay them a million dollars to get them to figure out what is the actual socioeconomic status based on free and reduced lunch eligibility at a high school that draws kids from. I would guess, you know, 30 neighborhoods or, mm-hmm. or something around the city. I mean, and Murray Bertram has always been like that, but yeah. I think that it exemplifies this other process that had been happening in New York I can only speak about New York City, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, Joel Klein's initiative. I don't know what it's called, the school, the student school choice initiative, mm-hmm. where basically there was much more of an emphasis placed on parents being able to choose the school that they wanted their children to be a part of. Yeah. Um, so what that meant is that, you know, there it was very difficult to parse out community yeah. schools yeah. because so many students were traveling long distances to go to school. Sure. And so it, there was just no way to backtrack and figure out the feeder schools and what their... Um, 
their poverty rate was. Right. Right. Um, so you so went yeah. back. To, you went to the state, and you put together a letter, sort right. of trying to document the the difficulties of that. And was the the message essentially that it was unf- an unfair that it was um, discriminatory to towards high school programs. So yeah. that the that the state by using socioeconomic status as the determinant to break the tie, it was unfair mm-hmm. to high schools because um, the it was so difficult for high schools to be able to show that. Right. So We're compete. using using the school lunch forms as a measure, like right. this self reporting mechanism. Right. To document poverty right. was what made it discriminatory because teenagers do not want to self report on this. Right. I mean there's all this kind of evidence that say, no, I don't want to turn in my form. And also, just nationwide, yeah. they don't turn in their form. Yeah. And so the, the issue wasn't, take, it wasn't taking issue with or protesting using uh, levels of poverty as the way to break the tie. It was the methods were discriminatory, discriminatory towards high schools. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. That basically that there wasn't a recognition that high schools had these added challenges right. that other that elementary and middle schools don't have mm-hmm. or have much less of let's put it that way um in that it's really the onus is on the student mm-hmm. instead of let's say the parent to bring in the form mm-hmm. um and so the student has much less of an interest to turn in the form they also understand much less about what that form what the implications of that form is in right. terms of their own education and their funding. Right. Um, parents are more likely to understand that. Mm-hmm. But because high school students are older and parents tend to, you know, allow students to make more choices regarding sure. their education, you know, that's... Whether that's they allow them to or not, they're, yeah. they're going to be making Or they're going to be making yeah. them, exactly. So then what happened? So we got a response from... Uh, the New York State basically saying that their their request for proposals really made this clear that mm-hmm. there was going to be poverty poverty was going to be used mm-hmm. as a tie breaking criteria, um, and then what we we responded basically by saying that we know that poverty is going to be because that's part of the federal legislation, right? You know, this wasn't the New York State Education Department requirement, right? The legislation requires that the funding be tied to the percentage of the poverty rates of mm-hmm. schools. Um, but we didn't realize. But our response was basically we sh- we demonstrated our our eligibility based on poverty. Mm-hmm. It's unfair to then break the tie based on poverty. You're using the same measure. Mm-hmm. Um, to break a tie. I mean, at this point, you should use a different measure than, mm-hmm. you know, based on either the results of the program in, in the past or maybe, you know, using the a different rubric to evaluate the proposal mm-hmm. or other thing, other ways mm-hmm. to break the tie. And actually, we presented another, you know, model where in a prior round for a request for proposals, New York State Education Department, 21st Century, they had said that in the event of the tie, middle and high school programs will be ranked higher. Mm -hmm. And then they will be ranked based on academic achievement Mm -hmm. rates. Basically, the schools that have the are struggling the most i guess with their academic achievement rates right. and poverty rates mm-hmm. so there was more of a variety of factors that went into the final decision right and um, and so we kind of said you know we should probably revisit yeah you know this idea of having only one measure deciding the you know the quality of the proposal or the eligibility or you know the reason why a school is more deserving of these funds than another school and at this time, um, this was you had you had sort of spearheaded this. You had got your um, the leadership of the YWCA. Mm-hmm. They were very um, to, to back you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And were you in touch with other organizations who were in a similar position at that time? Yes, we were. We were in touch with uh, two other three three or four other organizations. They also submitted. Um, letters, but they submitted letters based on the peer reviewal process. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, we had spoken about two or three different things in our in our letter. Mm-hmm. We spoke about the poverty 
the criteria that they use to demonstrate poverty in the school, especially in a tie-breaking situation. Then we also talked about how they had changed their peer review process so that um, instead of peer reviewers working together as a group, that they were often separated by distance. Mm-hmm. Um, people were sent proposals and then they reviewed them and sent the um, their reviews back to the state as opposed to being able to speak to each other. Yeah. And um, so some organizations kind of uh, spoke about the inter-rater reliability mm-hmm. of, of being able to, you know, have people bounce ideas off of each other so that they can come to more of a consensus. And that was important because not all reviewers, most of them were in the field. And so we're very knowledgeable of the field, but not necessarily um, as intimately um, involved in 21st century programs. Mm -hmm. And also 21st century programs differ from state to state. Right. So even though the, the fed, it's a federal program, the federal legislation is fairly broad and they give a lot of room to states to kind of interpret that legislation mm-hmm. or you know, emphasize certain points rather than others. Um, and so when you had reviewers who were from other states, maybe they didn't understand some of the nuances of, of New York City or of New York State and often even people in, in, in upstate New York would not know some of the differences between upstate New York programs or rural or suburban programs and inner city programs. Right. So um, oftentimes when they evaluated the proposal, you know, they would pick up on details that, you know, for instance, one one proposal was, um, I guess, they, they one reviewer penalized that that proposal because. They talked a lot about school violence, but the proposal didn't mention anything about having surveillance cameras. Well, in New York City, an after-school program is not in any way capable of installing um, surveillance cameras in in a New York City Department of Education building. Mm -hmm. So they were knocked down a lot of points for that. Mm -hmm. But if you were were able to talk to other peer reviewers within those teams, that would have come out. That could have come out. Right, but there was no space for that. Right, and it, it's it, it is a an issue that I think that the um, the people organizing these procurement processes really face as a challenge. That because the the people who have the best knowledge of it are usually involved with proposals themselves and have to, um, you know, can't be a reviewer or right. they have to recuse themselves from anyone that they're familiar with. Because I know that some there are certainly people who do grant writing, mm-hmm. um, ser- provide grant writing consulting services who also serve as reviewers. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're supposed to remove themselves if they have any knowledge of or affiliation with the proposal, right. the proposer. Um, but it, it does get complicated. So I know that sometimes like New Jersey and New York, people go back and forth a little bit because mm-hmm. people from New Jer- you know, the state of New Jersey can get reviewers from, from New York and vice versa. But it used to be that everyone was sort of around a table. Mm-hmm. And they, this, this process, as you said, they did it. it they had distance. And it was, a, it was a matter of efficiency and cost effectiveness, right. I think, because they did it all online. Yep. Right? You started out, you had one, a, one specific issue, I feel like, which was it was discriminate, the, the method of breaking the tie was discriminated towards high school programs. But the ball got rolling a little bit. And once you were writing the letter and once you reached out to other organizations, people said, well, you know, what about this aspect of the process, mm-hmm. right? That, it seems like it was changed from how it was before and it's right. maybe less fair um, or maybe less comprehensive. And so it, the those various um, critiques of the procurement process all sort of got piled in together to some extent. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, I mean, yes. You know, I think that the New York State Education Department did have to cut some costs in terms of, like, figuring out how to... Right. The, this procurement process. Because in the past, you know, it was a lot... There were a lot more resources that were devoted to the, the peer review process, training, selecting pe- mm-hmm. the reviewers... Um, having the reviewers be all in the same space, you know, it was, um, it was much larger and they had to cut costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, there are, there are, there's much less funds available for these types of programs. So the stakes were much higher for community-based organizations mm-hmm. um, who were submitting proposals. Mm-hmm. So I think that created a lot, you know, that's kind of some of the tension 
Mm -hmm. that was happening at that time. And was there a formal appeal process for you to follow? Was there was there something in the the notification that said if you have an appeal, um, you know, here's what you do. No. So what, how did you figure? There out is how one to... now, I think. Uh huh. Well, we'll, <laughs> um, we'll, we'll get to yeah. the, the impact that this is at because that's you know it, it it seems probably like we're really like kind of geeking out on the details of this, and I I certainly am because I find it so fascinating. But the reason that it's so fascinating is because of what it led to. I feel like. Um, but what to, to stick with the process for a second? If there wasn't anything that said. Um, if you want to make an appeal, do this. H- how did you figure out how to even file this appeal? What happened is that we had been working with a grant writer who had been working, you know, she also writes lots of grants for for-profit organizations. And so she knew that there was a pretty um, detailed process for for-profit organizations to protest a bid. Mm-hmm. With the comptroller's office, mm-hmm. the New York State comptroller's office. Is that how you say that word? Because I've never understood how to say that word. Yeah, I feel like some I think people say com- controller and some people say comptroller. You know, I think it's comptroller. Let's say comptroller. Okay, so um, sorry. So, so then yeah. we started doing the research at the comptroller's office okay. to see if there was a process for yeah. nonprofit organizations yeah. to um, file a protest, and yeah. there was. Yeah. Um, and so that's how we settled on that process. And these other organizations also signed on? Um, what ended up happening is that when we first, we, so what happened is that we wrote the initial letter, mm-hmm. um, and the part of the comptroller's process is if you write this letter, you have to send a copy of it to everyone who had submitted a proposal. Right. I remember that. To the yeah. same bid. So when the other organ, when other organizations saw our letter, yeah. they reached out to us and said, you know, there were some other things that have come up in this process as Uh well. And the other, the second part of the process is that the New York state education department has, you know, can respond. Mm -hmm. And then we are given a chance to respond to their Mm -hmm. response. And so we included letters Mm -hmm. from other organizations in our response. And Mm -hmm. what we found out later was that the comptroller's office, um, deemed them as, as each letter as a separate protest. Mm -hmm. So that's how that came about. Yeah. So, so in the end, um, after all was said and done with the back and forth, mm-hmm. um, what what did the comptroller's office, you know, how did they actually formally respond? What did they put into place? I mean, what they said was that the they were going to work with the New York State Education Department in in basically reforming their procurement process for future proposals. Yeah. Um, they had decided that there was going to be, that everyone who had, all of the organizations who had been awarded uh, an award, a contract award, instead of the contract term being five years, it would be three years. Mm-hmm. And then the New York State Education Department would have to release another request for proposals um, for the remaining two years on mm-hmm. the contract, thus giving those organizations that may have been may not have been funded based on this criteria another opportunity um, to receive funding in the future after this process was reformed. And so th- that may seem like a small thing because it it's you know it wasn't that they came out and said okay these appeals have merit. We're going to take. We're not going to give all these grants out as they're awarded. We're going to start over and, and um, you know, conduct the process again. Mm-hmm. Or they didn't say, you know, we're going to figure. The education department has to figure out a way to award these programs. Mm-hmm. Or, but that changing the contract from the grant from five years to three years is a huge decision for them to make. I mean, mm-hmm. I know um, for our organization alone, and this is all public information that's out there. So. It's you know it's nothing terribly mysterious, but uh, we have we were awarded one of those contracts, mm-hmm. um, and we got a 21st century contract in the amount of four hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. So for five years was the initial um, you know memo or e- email or whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, and then when when this appeal happened and they came out and changed it from five years to three years. Some looked at that like a nine hundred thousand dollar loss for for our organization. Right now, that's theoretical to me. It's not you're not actually losing nine hundred thousand dollars. You're just you know getting a three year contract instead of a five year. But it's if you multiply that by 
the dozens of organizations who are awarded grants under that round. Um, it's a huge fiscal decision that they made or financial impact that they made. And, and, and also to, to underline that the, the federal legislation um, says that the grants have to be for at least three years. So they, they, one way to look at it is they, they knocked it down by two years. Another way to look at it is they forced the state education department to make it the minimal level of commitment that they could possibly make under federal law. Yeah. And then they would have to reform their procure, procurement process at the next um, competition. Yeah, I mean, and what we found out was actually that we were the first nonprofit organization to submit a mm-hmm. protest uh, to the New York State Comptroller's Office, and since then there have been numerous protests mm-hmm. uh, that they've received. And so I think it's important for community-based organizations to know that there are outlets for them to um, to respond if there's if there's an issue with the procurement process. Or, yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that really meant the most to me in this whole process was, I guess, being able to highlight how high school programs are different, in particular with mm-hmm. respect to funding requirements, because oftentimes after-school programs have these these requests for proposals, um, and, and elementary, middle, and high school programs are kind of lumped together under the same parameters. Right. And... It was, you know, it was important to me to kind of say, wait a second, high school programs can't meet the same um, conditions that elementary school can, school programs can, or maybe high, you know, middle school programs can. You know that high schools are different; they're judged differently. Mm-hmm. Um, they often have, you know, high schools are have much more kind of external pressures, um, or different external pressures. Mm-hmm. I won't say much more. Um, and so that needs to be acknowledged in the funding request for proposals mm-hmm. um, that come out of the city, the state, or nationally. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I completely agree with that. And we, you know, our program, our twenty first century contract is high school programs, um, and you know we've done a lot of work with high school programs. And that wasn't the most significant thing that that came out of this for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the most significant significant thing that came out of this for me was the example of what one person can do because Mm -hmm. you know it was amazing to me i mean we were sort of occasionally talking sort of on the side throughout this Mm -hmm. process and after the process Mm -hmm. just sort of reflecting on it and um you know brainstorming about how you might go about things and stuff like that and you know it was amazing to me that you as a program director of one program Mm -hmm. or one organization um, could spearhead this effort that would result in this enormous statewide policy shift and a, a, a reform of the of the actual process. Right. I mean, it was actually a really collaborative effort, I should say, that, you know, within the YWCA, there were several key people in the organization that was, you know, shaping mm-hmm. this pr- protest. But I think that the YWCA of the city of New York, it's while it's um, there's a lot of rich historical roots to the organization, and compared to maybe some other organizations that are much much larger, I mean it's not such a large organization. And so, for an yeah. organization that doesn't necessarily have the same, you know, uh, numbers or reach um, throughout the state, to be able to kind of uh, be able to address something on a state level. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very empowering. Yeah, I mean, it was it was empowering. It was inspiring. Um, I feel like to the field to be able to have an example of you know because we have a lot of advocacy efforts and policy efforts mm-hmm. and they're important. Mm-hmm. But you know, look how much impact you can have by just um, taking your own personal authority, collaborating with others, mm-hmm. as you said. Um, making it known and putting together a really coherent and smart argument mm-hmm. that there was, I don't believe, I don't know, but I don't believe there was ever any perception that um, this was anything personal or this was selfish or this was, you know, trying just the YWCA trying to get theirs or this, it, you know, was, I mean, I, I read the letter and mm-hmm. the materials and everything. And it was, it was really clear that there was a, there was a core 
principle at stake. There was evidence to support the arguments. You had legal counsel to be able to, you know, put it out there into like really coherent, those kind of crisp legal terms that, mm-hmm. um, that it's important to be able to speak that language. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was the quality of the effort in addition to the, the effort. But I think underneath it all, what I found so inspiring was that it was incredibly brave mm-hmm. because the state is who's giving you the money. Yeah, you know, and so it's like okay, it's you know, people say don't bite the hand that feeds you and that sort of thing, and it's like to be able to step up and say wait a minute, this, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't fair, and then it, also it's complicated. We're not just appealing about this one thing. There's all these other factors at play, mm-hmm. and it was only after you initiated it, you with your the support of your leadership. I put a lot of this on you because I think that it, I know that it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't spearheaded it. But I appreciate that your leadership and your colleagues at the YWCA mm-hmm. created and a team effort behind this. Too. I mean, but but once you spearheaded it, they got on board. Yeah. But if you <laughs> hadn't spearheaded it, if that initial letter hadn't gone around, mm-hmm. and others hadn't sort of climbed on board with it. It could have just been another case of everybody sort of grumbling to each other about how unfair it is, Mm -hmm. but nothing actually coming out of it. But I also want to say that it's important. It was important to us that other organizations also had a, you know, had their input in it Mm -hmm. because otherwise it would have been just, you know, the YWCA just didn't get theirs. And so they they just want their money. And and then it, it became actually more of a a critique of the field, you know, that this is something that we need to, to correct in the fields, yeah. um, the RFP process. And, yeah. I think yeah. We're, we're, we're both maybe pointedly not saying the names of the other organizations because we're not sure yeah. if they want to be sort of publicly exactly. associated with this. Yes. But, but that also leads me to something else that I find found fascinating <laughs> about all this because <laughs> when it happened, um, you know, what I was saying to you was people need to know about this. Mm-hmm. People, you know, because... People kind of learned that the pro- you know obviously people who got the grant learned that they had had been been cut from five years to three years. A lot of people were unhappy about yeah. that, um, and you know people who looked into it you know learned about why and people had received the letter, um, but the general public and the field in general mm-hmm. never really learned about it. So um, you and I put together a proposal to the National After School Association mm-hmm. um, convention to right. present uh, a workshop. Um, t- telling this story, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, for their own procurement process, that workshop was rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, um, you know, uh, on behalf of Development Without Limits, m- me and my colleagues have presented at that convention, you know, several years, and other workshops were accepted. That one was not accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, it's I can only guess as to why. Mm-hmm. Maybe we didn't write the proposal in a compelling enough way. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe there was reasons why people don't want to tell this story. Mm-hmm. I also um, got in touch with, if you recall, I got in touch with Youth Today, mm-hmm. the publication. Yeah. Um, and there was some interest on their part, at yeah. least at first, in writing a story about it. But there was never follow up, and I yeah. did try. I did follow up with them a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't want to. You know, I'm one of those people. I've never met a conspiracy theory I didn't like. Yeah. So you know, it's it's easy for me to attribute why. I just know that it seemed to be somewhat consistent that mm-hmm. um, people didn't really want to hear the story. And it's a long, tedious, complicated story. So for those of you who are still listening, I appreciate you sticking with it because the mm-hmm. details of it might not seem all that interesting. You know, whether there was 40% free and reduced lunch or more or less. But the, the fact of one person working in one organization being mm-hmm. able to have this statewide impact on policy, to me, that's inspiring and the story should be told. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, it also highlights the fact that there is actually very little space for you know these funding organizations to receive feedback from the fields. Yeah. You know, in a really systematic, consistent way, mm-hmm. um, and that there is a big need for us to create spaces where we can actually you know have more of a a back and forth about what it is that these funding streams or funding organizations or you know, what kinds of outcomes they're looking for. And then Mm -hmm. from us in the field, what it is that we need in order to make that happen. Or conversely, what other things we're seeing that are needs that need to be addressed. Yeah. And uh, we we don't have that space uh, to do it. And and I really hope that in the future, 
you know, in terms of the advocacy piece, that more more of that advocacy is, is shifted in terms of research, mm-hmm. you know, and really, you know, hard, concrete steps that mm-hmm. need to happen within the field in order for us to move forward as a field. Yeah. Um, and but in a way that would also reach the funders. Sure. Because because I think that the funding re- funding requirements that came down were were I guess what I want to say is that the the funding re- requirements I think that they were faulty because they didn't have enough of an understanding of the field in, mm-hmm. in, at least for high school programs. Yeah. And so I wish there was more of that kind of back and forth where they would get the re- we would have the request for proposals and then they usually have the questions and mm-hmm. then they'll send out addendums based mm-hmm. on the questions. But there's not a space to give feedback basically to say wait a second, you know, this this doesn't seem fair. Yeah. Yeah. And to get a response or to get a modification or to know, be, or even, yeah, yeah. To, to be or fair, even to there, be able to have it. There is, I think, some of that process sort of modeled in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, the Department of Youth and Community Development does a, really make an effort to have that sort of dialogue in mm-hmm. that before they issue an RFP, they issue a concept paper and yes. they request feedback yes. from yes. the field. Yes. And they allow some time for people to get together, have conversations. I know mm-hmm. this last time for the out-of-school time funding, um, PACE, the Partnership for After School Education, sort of hosted a conversation um, and so people could be able to have their input without necessarily writing something themselves because people are afraid to be, you know, have their critique attributed to themselves or people mm-hmm. don't necessarily have the time to make the effort. Right. So PACE was sort of facilitating that. Um, and then DYCD, the, theoretically, they issue the, an RFP that has taken into consideration some of the feedback. Now, I think the, the critique is how the process is actually managed in, in real time. I think that mm-hmm. the theoretically, though, they're making that effort. I think more specifically, I would say the critique is that they don't necessarily take enough of the feedback into consideration when they build out the the RFP itself. To be fair, they're dealing with a lot of external pressures from the funding they get that they're then regranting and they're they're juggling a lot of influences. Not not to let them off the hook, but it's it's always complicated. But yeah, do, do you think that that process is sort of um, structurally sort of what you're suggesting? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But more, but much more intentional, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that there needs to be a lot more reflection based on it. I mean, the thing is, actually, that the New York State Education Department, you know, we they have for the 21st century, they have year after year after year, multiple kind of workshops and conferences. And I will have to I will say that they are very, you know, responsive in, in that sense of like, what are some of the professional development needs that you have and and they will try and solicit for that but I feel like there isn't a really formalized space to be able to do it there there needs to be more formalized spaces for people in the after school kind of youth development field to be able to get together and compare best practices and then Mm -hmm. have those best practices inform you know our work in the Mm -hmm. field but then also inform policy and and the but in in a much more cohesive way yeah um and these requests for proposals because the request for proposal oftentimes i think people look at a request for proposal well let's just get the funding and then we'll worry about it later like how we're gonna make this work right but i think that we should stop and say wait a second you know why can't we give feedback of like wait a second as a can as a field yeah. and a consensus this is what i think if we make this tweak or this whatever this will make it so much easier mm-hmm. um or so much better mm-hmm. um because i think that there's a lot for instance there's a lot of um emphasis in requests for proposals on you know and i'm talking about school-based programs right now or mm-hmm. 21st century programs mm-hmm. 21st century programs really emphasize you know collaboration with the school day mm-hmm. but you know the the grants the grant money that they're giving out is really to provide direct so there's not a lot of money unless you really think about it before you develop your proposal to really do the coordination with the school day mm-hmm. in a way that will you know, help us meet our ends as opposed to us just going and talking to the principal and saying, what do you need? And there's lots of things where we should have kind of this loop of communication that's difficult with the staffing that's available. Yeah. 
And so, you know, just like a little tweak here or there, just adding, you know, saying, you know, you can have dedicated staff to kind of figuring this out. Yeah. Um, would make a huge impact in terms of, I'm, this is an example, in terms yeah. of the program, the, the end sure. product. Sure. But the way so, that the RFP is structured yeah. really allow, is what allows for those sorts of things to be suggested in the, in the proposal. Yes, it's very open process. You could suggest a lot of different things in the proposal, mm-hmm. but at the same time, there's a lot of requirements in the right. Right, that's what that's what I mean. Proposals. That it limits your ability limits, to do that exactly. within the budget. I mean, you know, there's they. Do, I will say that 21st century is uh, really does allow for people to be creative in the pro- proposal process. You really can mm-hmm. create a program proposal that is responsive to the specific needs of the specific community or schools that you're working with. Mm -hmm. But because there is, there are so many different requirements in that proposal, um, it is very difficult for someone proposing that, um, to kind of divvy up the resources properly, especially if you don't know what, I guess there isn't enough research to show these are the these are the ways in which um, other programs have successfully met these requirements. Right, right. And the proposal, I think a lot of people don't realize the proposal you write becomes your contract. Yes. I mean, you're you're saying if if you give me this money, this is what I'm going to do. I this mean, is what there's you're some do. flexibility, but not a whole lot. I mean, you really have to. I mean, and I will contend that there's a lot more flexibility in 21st century than in other funding streams that right. I've seen. Right. And right. so, to, to be fair, I think that 21st, you know, the New York, at least the New York State Education Department request for proposals. Right. It does allow you to kind of like imagine a program model but at the same time if you have you know i I don't i don't know off the top of my head but let's say just a random number if you have you know 20 objectives and under each objective there's three sub objectives right i mean that's yeah that's a lot to manage sure and Um, you know it's (laughs) it's interesting because the the timing of this um conversation because we're, we're talking about the rfp as though it's something that exists but all mm-hmm. we can talk about it's what's in the past what's in the past um, they they reshape their rfp right. year after year after right. or each, each each round each round yeah yes um and we'll we'll get into that in one second but i do want to say the the epilogue to all of this is that i think it was a year after the initial grants came out mm-hmm. they realized that they had the state realized that they had enough money to fund some more programs, but not enough to do a full funding round. Yes. And so they looked at the highest scoring proposals that were not funded under that first round and awarded several new grants. And your program was one of those yes. uh, programs that was awarded. So in the end, you got the grant. Um, yeah. But the you know the appeal process and the, the changing from five years to three years and the comptroller telling the education department to change their procurement process. Mm. That has nothing to do with that. You just, it was, it worked out that you got the grant. And the New York State Education Department just recently announced that they're going to be taking some extra time to develop the request for proposal process for right. the next round. And that's, that's what I wanted to get to next because um, I don't know how much that has to do with the procurement process mm-hmm. changes. I think it's more to do with the fact that they're waiting to find out what the state is going to do around the waivers to No Child Left Behind. Right. And, or, we're, you know, we're supposed to call it ESEA, mm-hmm. Elementary and Secondary mm-hmm. Education Act. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but because that, you know, you know, legislation has not been completely thrown out, they're just trying to sort of modify, modify it and hobble along because Congress doesn't seem to be able to do anything at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the president has said that there can be waivers. And one of the waivers is that um, the states may use 21st century money for things other than just after-school programs, um, for in-school work, what we some people are calling extended day, expanded learning, but there's a lot of room and give in there. If you're, you know, if people want to get more details on that, after-school alliance re- recently put out um, sort of an FAQ and a lot more information about what the waivers mean and which states have gone after them. I don't. Um, New York hasn't officially been requested and granted a waiver at this time, but I believe that that's in process. I don't know what's going to happen with it. And I think that, that state ed has to sort of wait to issue the RFP until they know what the, what the deal is with that. So this next RFP that comes out in, quote, the spring, which we don't know when that is, mm-hmm. but um, may be very different yes. than 21st century RFPs in the past. 
Yes. And I wonder, are they going to be called 21st Century Programs then? Yeah, it's the legislation is still okay. what funds it. 21st Century Community Learning Centers is still what funds it. But the idea is you can use the money to do some other things besides mm. just what... So people are very worried about this being a watering down of after school and being a, essentially... It's essentially a net cut to after school programs, potentially. Yeah. Um, and others would say that it's allowing more flexible use of the funds, which particularly for high school programs could be advantageous because you could do out of school time work during regular school hours. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I think it's a complicated issue. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be speaking soon to Jennifer Davis, who's the um, CEO or executive director of uh, the National Center on Time and Learning, who has really spearheaded nationally this whole expanded learning effort. Um, to you know, talk to her about all these different complicated issues, um, and you know, we'll see what comes out of that. But mm-hmm. I do want to say that um, to me, what you did, and I, I, this might sound a little hokey, but to me, the, the the energy that you put into it and what came out of it, what you did, was really heroic. It was really like one person taking the initiative to really like step up and say, you know, no offense, but this isn't fair. Mm-hmm. And the the grace with which it was done, there was no. Um, you know, calling around with angry phone calls and trying to get people riled up. It was just very clear and straightforward, mm-hmm. assuming good intent on all sides, but not backing down and mm-hmm. saying, you know, we, we, we're going to stick with this until we, you know, we get uh, a real response. And so to me, that, that was heroic, and it's a story that needs to be told. And I, as much effort as I made with you know, the NAA conference and the youth today, mm-hmm. um, it, it, take, it took me making a podcast to be able to actually just get the story out there. So I really appreciate what, the work that you did, and I appreciate um, you coming to talk to me about it. Thank you. I really appreciate being able to speak with you about it. Yeah, great. Well, um, you know, I look forward to talking to you once the new uh, RFP comes out. We can... We can share notes about what we think about the the changes that they might have made. Yeah, and maybe absolutely. we can both become reviewers and uh, experience the process ourselves. <laughs> I'd love that. It's yeah. a great process being the reviewer. Yeah, I've never yeah. done it. Well, Hannah, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk Thank to me you. and being on Please Speak Freely.